God is now speaking to us through his word, through our sermon series in Daniel. Would you please rise for the reading of God's word, if you are able, out of reverence. We're looking at Daniel chapter 2. We looked at the first half of this chapter last week. Now we are finishing out this narrative. We're looking at Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 uh, through the end of the chapter. Therefore, Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your head. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you roll over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall roll over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such, and you may be seated. I want to begin today by making an observation of semantic import. It's really exciting, isn't it? But here it is. There is a difference between the noun complexity and the noun complication. Often we use these words as synonyms, but really they're not. On the one hand, complexity refers to a system or organization with a multiplicity of parts that harmoniously work together to an end. On the other hand, Complication refers to something that is introduced into a system or situation which makes it more difficult to function or press forward. Uh, Let me illustrate. Um, There's some tech people among you. A computer, a computer program which was created and developed as an example of a complex machine or program with a multiplicity of intricate parts or processes yet working together in a harmonious way, a unity to function and complete a task. Yet if something or somewhere along the line of computer uh, construction or program development, and there's introduced a virus or a part was placed wrongly, that then makes a complication to that complex system. Perhaps biblical analogies are more helpful for you. Um, Adam and Eve were created and placed in a complex system. Yet, God had put them in a situation of unity and diversity, all parts working together for the glory of God and for the good of creatures. Yet when they ate of that forbidden fruit, when they gave into the lies of Satan, they introduced sin and misery into this world, and they introduced complication into this complex world which God has made. How much better would it have been if they followed the words of that old gospel tune, trust and obey? How much better off would we be if we followed that advice? How often do we complicate the Christian life? The truth is God has given us a simple diet and a training regimen which gives good results. He has given us the ordinary means of grace, his word, prayer, and the sacraments. Yet far too often we neglect these things as we are in the complicated situation of living in a world of sin and misery, traveling on the streets of Babylon. 
Here today, God provides us, again, with an ordinary means of his grace in the reading and preaching of his word, Daniel 2, 24-49. This passage is both complex and clear. But in our finite and fallen minds, the church is often complicated and confused its meaning. What I hope for us to see today is the complexity of this passage, but also its clarity. At the end of the day, this passage is about two things, a statue and a stone. That's what this is about, a statue and a stone. The statue represents the kingdoms of this world, which even were established by our sovereign God, but are in hostility to God's people. And the stone, the stone is the Lord Jesus Christ who establishes his eternal kingdom. This text calls on us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith as the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's about a statue and a stone and it's about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the permanence and prominence of his kingdom which we enter into by faith. We will look at this passage under three headings. First, we are going to consider a courtroom confrontation, verses 24 through 30. Second, we'll look at a conquered colossus, verses 31 through 45. And finally, we'll look at a confirming command, verses 46 through 49. A courtroom confrontation, a conquered colossus, and a confirming command. Let's look at that first point, a confrontation at court. As I mentioned, with our passage today, we're stepping back in to a narrative right in the middle of it. Last week, we looked at the first half of this narrative, wherein King Nebuchadnezzar had received this disturbing and troubling dream. And he can't sleep anymore, and he calls immediately for all of his wise men, the astrologers, the enchanters, the the Chaldeans, all of his sorcerers, everyone that could have any knowledge of the situation, because he needs to know now what this dream meant. But he asks them a, a curious thing. He wants them to tell him the dream first, and then give the interpretation, something which is not, was not common practice. Usually the king himself would give them the dream. In response to this high request, his wise men declared that, that to know and declare the dream It's not in their power. Indeed, that knowledge belongs with the gods who dwell not with human flesh. So naturally, the king responds by commanding that all of his wise men be destroyed and killed immediately. As Daniel and his friends are counted among this number, and they're being sought out to be killed, he asks the chief official, why is the king so urgent in this matter? What's going on? When he learns the situation, he sought an audience with the king, and he went back to his friends and told them the situation, and they sought the Lord out in prayer to reveal this matter. The Lord, in his grace, revealed the dream to Daniel, and we ended with Daniel's beautiful prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God in verses 20 through 23. I left you with kind of a cliffhanger ending about what would happen in this narrative. Today we continue the narrative, so we read in verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, 
whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me to the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. We should note that earlier when Daniel received the dream, he did not immediately go to Arioch and the king, did he? No, first he stopped, importantly, and he praised the God of heaven who reveals mysteries. He praised the God of his fathers for being gracious and merciful to him in this situation. Here again we see Daniel gives thoughts to others. The first thing he says to Arioch, the man in charge of the execution project, is to not destroy the wise men of Babylon. We might pass that over quickly, but he could have said, kill all the others who practice their devilish arts, but leave me alone because I can reveal this and I have some friends that you can protect. He could have said, do that. Yet, Daniel has received mercy and grace, and he wants to extend mercy and grace to others. So he sought to protect the lives of all the wise men. Daniel's concern for others is somewhat humorously contrasted to Arioch, who quickly takes Daniel to the king and proclaims, I have found a man who can do this thing. I have found one who can give you the interpretation. Now we know from the narrative that Daniel had already set up an appointment with the king, but here Arioch tries to take advantage of the situation, hoping to gain favor from the king, saying that he has found the man who can do this thing. In direct contrast to Daniel's altruism, this man is seeking his own promotion. Notice how he identifies Daniel as one from among the exiles from Judah. A more literal translation is, I have found a man from the sons of exile. Sons of exile. If you're looking to make a Christian metal band, that's a really good name. Sons of Exile. But it makes a point. The point here is significant. It's not a Babylonian wise man who is able to fill, fulfill the king's command. It's a Judean exile. It is a man who is not yet 20 years of age, who was just brought in from that lowly city and is now being trained in the courts of Babylon. It's not the wise men of Babylon who can do this thing. It is a young Judean exile. This point is highlighted in verses 26 through 28. The king addresses Daniel, or Belteshazzar, as he has been renamed, remember, and if he can make known the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel responds thus, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Think about this situation. As we just noted, here is a young man, not even 20 years old, a man in a foreign land, a captive in a foreign land. And he has been renamed after a foreign deity. And he is standing before the most powerful person in the world at that time. What would you have done? The king's asking him for immediate interpretation of this dream. But Daniel uses this as an opportunity to testify before the king 
proclaiming the failure of the Babylonian religious and scientific system to provide knowledge. And he declares the glory of the God of heaven, the one who reveals mysteries. Daniel takes no glory to himself or honor. In verses 28 through 29, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that it is the God of heaven who gave him this dream about what is to take place in the future. And it is the same God who revealed this mystery to Daniel. So he states, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is not taking any credit to himself, but is giving all glory to the God of heaven. He claims no special wisdom, but only that he is an instrument in the Lord's hands to make known his will to this king. I've talked about this episode as a confrontation at court. But understand, the confrontation isn't ultimately between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. The confrontation is between the true and living God and the false gods of Babylon. That's the confrontation which is taking place in this court scene. All the wise men of Babylon, with all of their cunning and crafts, which were supposed to reveal the will of the gods, they cannot answer the king's request. They cannot tell him the dream or give its interpretation. Their gods are full of false promises, even as they themselves confessed. Such knowledge belongs to the gods who dwell not with flesh. But Daniel, a young Judean exile, is able to make the mystery known. Not because of any special wisdom in him, but because there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that God, Daniel worships and trusts. And he has made known this mystery to Daniel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has revealed to his saints the mystery hidden for ages and generations. How do we respond to this grace? How do we think about and treat others to whom this has not been revealed? Daniel did not profess any special knowledge and wisdom, but gave glory to God. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Paul states this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus." who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. How do you think about yourself? Does it offend you that Paul calls us the foolish? He calls us the weak. He calls us what is base and low. And he does that not to degrade us, but to give glory to God. God chose what is base. God chose what is low. God chose what 
is weak to shame those who think they are wise in this world. And so that we might have true wisdom, wisdom of the knowledge of His Son. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not because of your worth or wisdom, but because God has shown you grace and mercy. And He has done this, not that we might boast in ourselves, but that we may boast in the Lord and His worth and His wisdom. That is why God saves us, that we might honor Him. The reason for which we honor and glorify Him brings us to our next point. We have just looked at a confrontation at court. Now let us consider a conquered colossus. Here, finally, we get the dream and its interpretation. Daniel tells the first part of the dream in verses 31 through 33. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar saw was a vision of a colossal image, or more likely a translation here is that he saw a huge statue, a colossal statue. The statue is described as great, mighty, and of exceeding brightness. The appearance of this statue did not inspire love and admiration, but dread and fear. Daniel describes the reason for its greatness and brightness, saying that it was composed of four elements. Its head was of fine gold, its arms and shoulders of silver, its midsection and thighs bronze, and its legs made of iron. Notice that in this image, we see two different things. A deterioration of value and an increase of strength. It begins with the finest of gold, which is a soft metal. Then it deteriorates into silver, to bronze, and finally to iron. Yet gold, as I mentioned, is the softest substance. Then silver, and these give way to the firmness, and finally to that iron, which is the weapon, the metal used of weapons of warriors. It's the strongest of all of these. Yet these iron legs curiously give way into a mixed substance when we come to the feet, that they are mixed with both iron and brittle clay. Daniel tells the second part of the dream in verses 34 through 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. While gazing upon this great and dreadful statue, Nebuchadnezzar then saw a small stone a stone which was hewed not by human hands, which struck the feet of the statue. When the stone struck the feet, 
it injured them not only, but caused the entire statue altogether to be crushed and broken to pieces. So much so that these precious and strong metals, along with the clay, become as chaff of the wheat. Uh, the image of, uh, of that threshing floor in the summer, wherein you separate the chaff, the outer useless parts of the kernel, and you get the wheat, what's really valuable. That is the image of these kingdoms of the earth. That is the image of this statue that all of this becomes worthless and blown away with not a trace being found. But there's a contrast. The small stone which struck the statue remained, and it became a great mountain that filled all the earth. So much the dream. Now Daniel gives us its interpretation, how thankful we are for that. Daniel states in verses 36 through 37, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Here Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the title King of Kings, a title which is also used in, for Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 26, verse 7. This title, in fact, was quite accurate, as Nebuchadnezzar had subdued most of the kings of the known world at that time. Daniel also says that the kingdom, the power, the might and the glory belong to Nebuchadnezzar. This language, which is used in Scripture, it's often used in reference to God, ascribing to him these possessions and qualities. But notice, all of these things, that all-important verb, Nebuchadnezzar does not have any of these things from himself. Rather, the God of heaven has given to you given to Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. In his divine sovereignty, the Lord has granted these things to Nebuchadnezzar, not because of his person, not because of his worth, but to bring about his own purpose for his people. Look further at verse 38, which continues. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Again, Daniel emphasizes the divine giver. It is God who has given Nebuchadnezzar dominion over man, over the beasts of the field, and over the birds of the air. Does that language sound familiar to you? That dominion over creation. It's very similar to the language used in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 8, where God's creation mandate to mankind is given. Man was made to rule and govern on behalf of God over all creation. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar that God has given him the kingdom and he has this task. It's an interesting parallel that he is making these connections with Genesis 1. It's almost that you get this image of creation perverted and what was supposed to be of man and ruling on behalf of God, now we are seeing this pagan king ruling on behalf of the false gods. But before Nebuchadnezzar's head of gold can swell too big, Daniel quickly adds in verse 39, another kingdom superior to you shall arise after you, 
and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So now we understand that this image of a statue with its four different parts is representing to us a succession of kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom is represented by a head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is not permanent. It will give way to other kingdoms. The Neo-Babylonian kingdom, for all of its power and might, in reality, it only lasted from 605 to 539 BC, some 67 years. While the identification of Babylon with the first kingdom, the golden head, is clear, after this it becomes a little more complicated on our side to know what kingdom is being referred to. The question is, who do the, which kingdoms do the second, the third, and the fourth point to? Who are represented as silver, bronze, and iron? To summarize the debate swiftly, traditionally the four kingdoms have been interpreted as Babylon, Medo-Persia, a combination of them, Greece, and Rome. Others have suggested uh, Babylon, Media, Media-Persia, and Greece. At this point, we do not need to settle this debate. Here I'll say that there's actually good arguments on both sides, but because of things we will talk about when we get to chapters 7 and 8, where these same kingdoms are talked about, I will then, right now I'm leaning towards the fourth kingdom is Greece, but I'm not a liberal, there's good reasons for it, and we'll talk about that. But it's complex, but what we know is this is about a statue and a stone. It's not ultimately about identifying every detail of history. It's about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll talk about that fun stuff when we get to chapter 7 and 8. But here Daniel describes the fourth kingdom, and he says in verses 40 through 43, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mix with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. As we noted earlier, these, met- these metals deteriorate in value, but they increase in strength. Whereas gold, silver, and bronze are more valuable than iron, yet iron is the strongest substance of these. This distinction perhaps reflects the grandeur of the kingdoms and their moral degradation. The fourth kingdom is that iron. Those who see this kingdom as Rome think of how Rome established their laws, yet sought to incorporate other cultures, things which did not mix well. Those who see this iron kingdom as Greece see in this the intermarriage between um, Alexander the Great's uh, four generals that left behind and had four separate kingdoms, which did not go well. 
In any case, these powerful kingdoms had a weakness and were not permanent, even as they're all connected. It's still one statue. The image it's giving us is of, while there's different forms of worldly and earthly evil kingdoms, they're all connected in God's eyes. Yet we read in verses 40 through, 44 through 45 of another kingdom. And it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. As we have learned, it is God who sets up kings and who brings them down for his own purposes. But here we learn that in the days of these pagan kings taking that whole statue and all those kingdoms together, in those days God himself will set up a kingdom, not from human craft or cunning, but from himself. This kingdom, this king, will be as a rock, cut with no human hands, sent from God to crush the kingdoms of this earth. Unlike the kingdoms of this earth, which arise and descend, this kingdom that God himself will make lasts forever. In Babylon, this is the dream which God gives to Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation which he gave to his servant, Daniel. Again, Daniel, a young Judean exile. Yet here, he excels over all others and through God's grace gives to the Babylonian king both his dream and its interpretation. To the original Jewish audience who read this text, it would have shown both God's faithfulness and his sovereignty, giving them hope in their exile, giving them hope in a future messianic king and kingdom. Despite the worldly powers around them, God was in control, and he was executing his will among the nations. To us who have seen the rise and fall of all these nations, regardless of who you identify them as, and who have seen the establishment of God's kingdom in Christ, we have grounds for both joy and hope. Daniel talks about a stone not cut by any human hands, which destroys and conquers all the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, born of a virgin, is that stone which, through his life, death, and resurrection, has conquered all the kings and kingdoms of this earth earth. It's beautiful how scripture works together like this. A stone cut without human hands. A virgin conceiving of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does he conquer? Unlike all the other kingdoms and kings of this earth, which rise and fall according to God's will, Christ's kingdom and glory will see no end. He is forever king of kings. And Lord of lords, having the name at which every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. The colossal statue of the world, the flesh, and the devil manifested in the kingdoms of this earth, which seems so powerful in our life, 
But this text tells us about God and his sovereignty. God in control. He raises kings and kingdoms up and he brings them down, but he established an eternal kingdom in his son. And he's happy to give this kingdom to us. All of this brings us to our next and final point. We have just looked at a conquered colossus. Now let us consider a confirming command. At the beginning of this narrative, Nebuchadnezzar gave two options. Either his wise men give him the dream and its interpretation, or they're dead. That was the simple options. Whereas his Babylonian wise men failed to deliver, yet Daniel, through the Lord, prevails and gives to Nebuchadnezzar both his dream and its interpretation. In response to Daniel's declaration of his dream and the explanation of his interpretation, we read in verse 46 that then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. Here, Nebuchadnezzar recognized that he is dealing with a man appointed and empowered by God to declare and deliver his will to the king. The most powerful man in the world falls on his face before a Judean exile not even 20 years old and pays homage to him and says to give offerings of incense to him. We do not need to assume that Daniel received worship from Nebuchadnezzar, but that through Daniel, the king offered worship and praise to Daniel's God. So Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 47, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar's wise men had despaired of hope, had despaired of knowledge, not knowing the knowledge of the gods. Here Daniel is exalted as the revealer of mysteries because his God is the revealer of mysteries. Daniel's God is worshipped and glorified in this episode through this confrontation at court. Whereas earlier Nebuchadnezzar is painted as the king of kings, Here he proclaims Daniel's God as the God of gods and the Lord of kings. While this is not yet a confession of faith by Nebuchadnezzar, yet here Nebuchadnezzar is moving closer to a knowledge of the true and living God, and we'll see how that plays out even in the following narratives. In recognition of this and the blessing on Daniel in verses 48 through 49, we read that the king gave to Daniel high honors, making him the governor over Babylon proper, chief over all the wise men. And in accordance with his character, Daniel does not think only of himself, but asks that his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, might be made subordinate rulers over Babylon with him. But Daniel dwells in the king's court. Again, it's emphasizing the blessing of the Lord on this young man, even as he's traversing in the streets of Babylon. Now he's presiding in the court of the king. All of this reveals the glory, the power, and the sovereignty of the God of Israel. In this situation, God had revealed his will to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king whom he had appointed to rule over the whole earth. 
All the wise men of Babylon, whose job it was to determine the will of the gods, failed to give the king his dream and his interpretation. Yet this young Judean man, through prayer and reliance on the Lord, on his God, the God of his fathers, he receives a vision of his dream. He receives its interpretation and he declares it. In the confrontation of the court of the king, the Lord shows that he is sovereign and that he is the one who possesses knowledge. In recognition of this, the pagan king promotes the people of God to a position of power. As we look at this passage, we must understand that God is our king and that in his holy word, in Christ Jesus, he supplies all that we need for life and godliness. He is the one who still grants favor to us. In the midst of Babel, we are blessed. Moreover, in the court of heaven, in the court of the God of gods and Lord of kings, Jesus Christ, who took on our flesh, he remembers us. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And from his throne of grace, he himself showers upon us his grace and favor, giving to us a kingdom which cannot be shaken. At the beginning of this sermon, we reflected on the difference between complexity and complication. Through looking at this text, we have seen that it is complex in considering the identity of these four nations mentioned. Yet I hope that today we are not perplexed through complication. Today, this text clearly promises and proclaims the conquering of the stone over the statue. The permanency of the kingdom of Christ over the pomp and pageantry of the kingdoms of this earth, which faint and fail and are fleeting. In his parable of the tenets, Jesus Christ draws together the teaching of our passage in Daniel, and he he combines this with Psalm 118, and also along with Isaiah 8. He teaches us that he is the stone cut without human hands, being the divine son, born of the virgin. He is the one who through his life, death, and resurrection, who conquered and crushes all the rulers and kings of this earth, He has canceled the record of the debt of his people by nailing them to his cross. In this vision, we see that the stone would conquer and crush. It's an amazing thing that the manner in which he conquers and crushes is by being killed on a cross for us. He is the one who conquers all his and our enemies. If you are here today and you desire something permanent and of prominence, look not to yourself or your own achievements or to any kingdom or king that this earth has to offer. Look rather to the Lord Jesus Christ, the stone cut without human hands, whose kingdom is without end. That is where you'll find permanence. That is where you'll find rest for your soul. Look to the stone who was cut For you and your salvation. Look to the stone who crushes all his and our enemies. Look to the one who hung and died on a cross for you and for your salvation. And he will give to you a kingdom prepared by his father for us. A kingdom which can never be shaken. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith 
to whom belongs all wisdom, power, might, and glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your word. We marvel at your might and your power, your grace and your goodness. How thankful we are for this narrative. How thankful we are for the truth of it. How thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. The stone cut without human hands, born of a virgin. How thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the cornerstone rejected by the builders, and yet whom, in whom you are building up a temple, in whom you are making a kingdom. Lord, we thank you that flesh and blood has not revealed this to us, but our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you give us this. Lord, thank you for revealing your mystery to us. We pray that you would be working in the hearts of all of us here to have us look to the Lord Jesus Christ for permanence and for protection. We pray that we would glorify you in our lives and that we would live as as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We pray all of this, uh, that you would bless us and build us up by the power of your spirit and in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Whereas all the kingdoms in this passage are destroyed and gone away, and all kingdoms of this earth rise and fall, yet the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is forever, and He even now sits reigning on high on the right hand, at the right hand of God the Father, and He feeds us with this kingly feast, this image of what He has done for us. His body, which was broken, and his blood, which was shed. In this passage, we read about the stone which was cut without human hands. The stone which conquers all his and our enemies. And each week, he gives us an image of how he conquered, how he defeated our enemies. Namely, his body given for us. His blood shed. The one who crushes the nations is the one who hung on the cross for us and for our salvation. Let that humble us and draw us to give praise and glory to Him who reveals mysteries, who reveals the mystery of the ages, the salvation which He has prepared for us, of which this meal is a sign. This is for those who trust in that rock. This is for those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for those who have been baptized and are members in a church a Bible-believing church where the Word of God is preached and proclaimed. This is for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, are repenting of their sins, and are looking to Him in faith. If that does not describe you, I would ask that you let these elements pass. That which is supposed to be a blessing would become a curse if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But do not let Him pass. Look to this King. Look to this Kingdom. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him by faith. And He'll give to you a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And a king which will never fail. Will never die. We can live with Him forever. Receive this king. Trust in this salvation. But for those of us who are trusting in this, we now even get a foretaste of our heavenly feast. 
We get to feed on the finest that heaven has in its stores. We feed on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Uh, Let us then go to the Lord and ask for his blessing of these ordinary elements to our spiritual good. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the crusher of the nations, who for us and for our salvation became man, lived the life that we could not live, and died a death which we could never endure. Lord Jesus, we're looking to you by faith. We pray that you would help our unbelief. And even those who consciously know that they do not believe, we pray that you would use your word preached and your sacrament administered to work faith in their hearts and bring a confession from their lips. Lord, you do this work. We pray that you would bless these ordinary elements of bread and wine to our spiritual good. Nourish us by faith. Help us to be faithful as we walk in the kingdoms of this earth, knowing that our true citizenship is in heaven. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would bless us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.